Diet Black Podcast is a podcast about true crime, punk rock and gothic music, TV shows and movies, pretty much anything creepy or weird that we decide to discuss. It may contain graphic content, vulgar language, and suggestive themes that may be triggering and or inappropriate for some listeners. Let's be honest, it's gonna contain vulgar language. Now all opinions are just that, they're opinions. We are not scholars, lawyers, or historians, and by no means do we claim to be experts. And the information that we obtain comes from the internet, and we have no proof that it's fact. So thank you, and enjoy the show. Sorry, we're a little late, but um, I am. I was gonna say I'm Tam, but I'm not. <laughs> I am me. Liam. <laughs> I'm Tam. It has been a day. It's been well. I mean, I think everybody knows that things are not normal, and we're not normal, and we were never normal to so begin this with. Is so just, now it's just like heightened. And knowing what day it is and what day to record and. Not having friends who need voice conferencing or video chats or online cocktail hours. You know, for being at home and not seeing anybody, we have a very busy social schedule. Yeah, but, you know, on the plus side today, we uh, I actually uh, finished painting the bar. We finished painting the bar. We've been working on it constantly. So we've been here for almost like... Damn near eight months already. It has not been eight months. Well, we moved here in September. Au- September, so October, November, December, January, f- February, February March, March, April. Seven months. It's almost eight months. Okay, so we're in between. Okay, yeah. But the point is, is that we got the paint a little while after we moved in, and this place has been the hardest. To paint because... Like, I mean, I've even painted, like, panel board, like, growing up in Florida, that was everywhere, but this shit... Oh, this, this is shit's the worst... fucking nightmare. Okay, so it's all... Barnwood. Barnwood, which is really pretty texture wood. However, painting it is a royal pain in the ass because everything is creviced and textured, and getting paint into every little crevice so it doesn't look weird takes muscle and repeated coverings. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing this forever. I mean, we only had two gallons. We're almost at, we're at pretty much at the end of the second gallon. I mean, we're going to get another one just to do touch-ups and stuff. But, I mean, this has been the most difficult room to paint in my entire life. But, now that I see it, it was worth the labor. Oh, it's look it looks amazing. Yeah. The turquoise just pops. It lightens this room up so much. And it makes it feel so much more like 
tropical. Yeah, and I've been ordering little tchotchkes to fill up the spaces, and I did a painting, and, like, I got these, like, really cool giant size like, versions of Halloween masks from back in the day from, like, Retro Go-Go. And we got a couple of parasols that have, like... Betty Page. Betty Page on them, and one of them's got kind of, like, skeleton mermaids, and it's really, like, the room is really pulling together. Yeah, it's taking so, a little bit of time, but I think it will most definitely be worth every ounce of time that we put into it. So now at least it's, it's, it's painted except for a few little details, but now we can actually decorate it. Yes. And as... get all the shit that I put in the dining room. Yeah, we can finally regain our dining room because everything was in there while we were painting in here. So we can actually move the furniture back to where it's supposed to be. Oh, it's going to be nice. And then we can clean the hell out of the living room because it's driving me crazy because there's nowhere to put anything. Yeah, but the next project is going to be the basement. Well, that's going to be a whole other nightmare, but we're going to get to that later right now. (laughs) We are reveling in what we have done. Which is is great. I'm super excited cool thing about this paint is this wood was super rough and now you can actually like run your hand down it and it's not so bad you will get less splinters less splinters but it's beautiful and anyways other than that um we have been doing some crazy stuff uh we did uh gishwish oh yeah so um i don't know if you guys know about gishwish it's the greatest international scavenger hunt the world has ever seen it is hosted by misha collins from Supernatural, everybody knows um, Castiel, and he's always been really big on charity work. So every year he organizes a week-long scavenger hunt of creativity and art projects for um, people to participate in and donate to charity. And this year, since we're all stuck at home, he did a one-day quarantine version I mean, it was fun. I mean, I was a bit miserable that day just because it didn't feel good, but it was still awesome. It was a lot of fun, and we did some really good work. We did a window painting on the front window thanking our essential workers. So thank you, essential workers. We applaud you. Um, And we also did a sign supporting the LGBTQ plus community. Reminding people that even though you may be stuck at home with people who don't always agree with your life choices and your lifestyles and your identity and your preferences, you are not alone. Nope. There's always somebody out there to help. We recommend um, several hotlines and online resources. And if you need any of that information feel free to hit us up. We will point you in the right direction because people are out there to help you. You are not alone. Hopefully, if you're listening to us right now, you know that we support you. And we know that even though you're stuck at home, there is a light at the end of all this. Yes. So so um, that's pretty much it for our... Uh... House cleaning stuff, so I think we Yeah, can... I mean, other than that, we've just been playing Animal Crossing. And if you like... want to join us in Animal Crossing, drop us a friend code. We'll friend you. We'll, yep. we'll, we'll check out your island. You can check out ours. It it's, it's, seems to be the thing to do these days. So, um, 
We're into it. Yeah, Animal Crossing, the way to go. Um, I'm also a part of a new band, Casey and the Pickups. Yeah, which... That's kind of taking off. Uh, Lead Singer's been posting a bunch of stuff, so... Look up Casey and the Pickups. Yes, and Um, I think that'll be super dope. I'm excited for that. And we will post more about that as that comes along. Mm -hmm. But speaking of bands... We are continuing our celebrity musicians slash educational programming here. Yeah, so this band is uh, definitely unique. It's one of those bands that you either know them and love them, or you completely wrote them off and never paid attention to. Yeah, because I think that's the way that they live their lives. They were either absolutely amazing or fucking garbage. Yeah, and... And not, like, garbage the band. Like, like just no, and garbage. They'd, they'd be the first ones to admit that. Um, so, um, tonight, we're going to tell you about The Replacements. One of my favorite bands growing up through now. I still listen to them from time to time. Um, if you've seen our Instagram picture, when we went to Minneapolis for a wedding two years ago, one of my absolute must-do Moments was to go to First Avenue and the 7th Street Entry, which is their most prominent music venue. And I made sure I took a picture right outside of there um, with the replacement star. So, you know, it was it's it was a musical pilgrimage for me. And I'm really happy that I got to do that and share that with you guys. Um, But I'm going to jump right into it, if you don't mind. Um, For the past few weeks, we've been telling you stories about musicians who have self-destructed. The souls who have given us music that has endured through the artists themselves, and though the artists themselves have actually left this mortal plane too early, this band, it's a little different. Their story is similar, but not the same. Most of this uh, band is actually still alive. The band itself, though was admittedly destined to be accidentally brilliant and burn out just as fast. Yeah. Um, and accidentally brilliant is a really um, important thing because they didn't even think that they were as brilliant as they were at times. They were too fucked up to give a fuck. Exactly. But when they shone, they shone. When they didn't, boom. So, yes, we are talking about the replacements. And when asked what he was expected from his life, Paul Westerberg, the lead singer, said that the only options for the boys when where they came from was either jail, death, or janitor. You go to your guidance counselor and you're like, what could I possibly do? Well, with your scores. Yeah. You could either go to jail, you could die, or you could be a janitor. I mean, you've got choices at least. <laughs> Not great ones. <clears throat> yeah, but um, choices. And not to say that people who work at janitors is a bad job. No, not at all. Um, These boys all came from low middle class backgrounds with a history of conservative Midwestern beliefs and alcoholism. No one, not even they, thought they could do any better. When they did succeed, it was always on the back of, in the back of their heads that they didn't deserve their fame or praise. They were just as much about self-sabotage as they were about self-promotion. They were the band that people were counting on to bring punk to the mainstream well before Nirvana. Yeah, I mean, if they were punk, I mean, if there's a definition of punk, it would be them. 
Because they didn't give a fuck. It was totally DIY. No, and I mean, their music is legitimately everywhere. Like... They were one of the bands that made alternative radio cool. I mean, they were one of the first bands to be labeled alternative before it became, like, radio stations playing, like, you know, Nirvana on loops. They were the people who brought their music from college radio to actual radio. Um, And they wrote some of the most witty and cutting punk anthems, and they wrote some of the most heartbreaking songs about the realism of their upbringing. And they were a hot mess, and in their own words, aching to be. And when I say that most of this band is still alive, it's true. The man who started the band and fueled the early music, and then subsequently was fired from his own creation, <laughs> was the one who paid the ultimate price for the replacements. So I'm Bob started band. Yeah, it's gonna be so cool. <laughs> so Bob Stinson was not the face of the band that people remembered. No, he didn't write all the hits as much as they had hits. He was the boy who picked up a guitar and learned how to play by copying what he heard on the radio. And then he shoved a bass into the hands of his 12-year-old brother, Tommy. Together, they would jam in their garage with their drummer, Chris Mars, under the name Dog's Breath. One day, a few months later, when they were playing and a guy who'd been walking past for a few weeks stopped to chat for a bit because he liked the music. And they never had a singer, so they figured they'd give this guy a chance. And that guy was Paul Westerberg. And at the time, he actually was a janitor in the office of his local senator. But he would soon be the guy who brought this band together and changed their lives. So Bob and Tommy were brought up by their mom, Anita Stinson. She had Bob and his sister before she was even 18. According to Anita, she could trace her family line back to 1840, but each of her ancestors settled in small towns in Minnesota. Each of them was a drunk, and several came with a side of mental health issues. Oh, well, you know, in Minnesota, there's not too much to do, really. I mean, you just get a little drunk to keep warm. <laughs> yeah, you'll do your work during the day, and then you'll have a couple beers to warm up I mean, at night. That, that there's a man's work, you know? <laughs> so each generation had a bunch of kids. And even when their fathers were around, it was impossible to make enough money to feed them all comfortably. Their dad, Neil, never took an interest and rejected his children. He was also a drunk, and he considered the kids his wife's problem. Yeah, he's like, oh, no, you see, what happens is when I stick it to it, you know, you just, you deal with it. I don't. Yeah, you you handle that. I'm going to go do other things. He's now. like, I got to go meet up with the guys. We're going to go bowling, and then we're going to drink in the bar, and that's on you. Exactly. But in December of 1964, Anita... Forged her husband's signature on his tax return check. <laughs> she told, the bank tellers all knew her, so no one even questioned it. So she took the money, she took her two kids, and she hopped a train to California. She's like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I'm sick of this shit. I'm out of here. I'm going to Cali. And she worked in a place called Lyman's Pizza Bar. And she was a go-go dancer who was paid to dance in a bikini and cowboy boots. She loved it. And she became a beloved part of the scene at Lyman's. Her clients would actually bring her all sorts of presents for her kids, including a small record player that Bob claimed for himself. 
and that rock record player would be his salvation while Anita was busy with her next man. Oh, that's so dark. It gets darker. <laughs> so Anita caught the I'm attention. Putting my brother's words. <sighs> exactly. <laughs> so Anita caught the attention of the handsome bartender at Lyman's, Nick Griffin. And Tommy came along when Bob was six, and he was the child of Anita's new boyfriend. But Nick didn't want Bob around the house and made him play outside all day. And he would either play on the beach or save his money for 45s that he would play on that little record player that he had. And that was really the only thing he was allowed to do in the house. Yeah, I mean, I can identify as being, like, the kid that, like... Your dad's like, yeah, it's cool, you're here, but get the fuck outside. Yeah, like, I don't want to look at you. No, been there, done that, got so, the t-shirt. <laughs> turns out that Nick Griffin was a drunk, too. He was also a degenerate gambler. Uh. And when Nick accepted Tommy as his son, and he actually doted on their sister Lonnie, he saved all of his anger for Bob. And he allegedly abused him repeatedly. Poor Bob. And Lonnie actually has confirmed these rumors and claimed that he, ac she actually caught Nick in the act once. And from then on, he also had turned his attention to her from time to time. They never told anybody because they were afraid that nobody would believe them. But when Nick's mother died in 1969, he up and moved the family from California to West Palm Beach, Florida. Oh, fuck that. <laughs> so... All the way to your hometown. Yeah, that's my hometown. I mean, at the time, I think it was, like, what, in the 70s? Yeah, 1969. Oh, the 60s. Like, fucking West Palm is a shithole now, and it was worse then. Yeah, apparently he worked at the Ramada until he lost his job. I wonder if it was the Ramada and, like, Belvedere. I know where that's at. <laughs> it's right <laughs> by the airport. <laughs> Probably. Um, but he lost all his money wagering at the West Palm Beach Kennel Club. Uh, fun fact. <laughs> a lot of my friends from high school actually worked at the Kennel Club. And we actually drove past it a lot when we were visiting yeah, there. It, it, it's, it's right by the airport, which is super close to where my brother works. So we passed by it a lot. And the hotel that we were staying at was right down the street. Yeah. I mean, it's a really cool building. I took pictures of that too. I can actually post that on the face or on the Facebook and Instagram as well, just if you guys want to see it because I thought it was a really cool sign that they yeah, have. Yeah, it, it's a cool little like low key suburb. It's like dotted with like dive bars and there's just, I mean, it's very like Florida Americana, like. You think of Florida, if you've never been there, or maybe you vacation there, you think of it like, hey, it's cool. They got bars and beaches. Great. But what about everything else? And kind of the Kennel Club, like, like engrossed that. It's yeah. like, this is what we do. <laughs> like, I have a friend whose brother lost a shit ton of money at the Kennel Club. Like, she would have to pick him up drunk at, like, 4 o'clock in the morning. Apparently, that's what Anita was doing for, for yeah, that, Nick as that well. That never really went away. I mean, they had the highlight, too, but that eventually went away. But the kind of club, still there. Yep. So Anita was the main breadwinner for the family, but when her father died, she realized that all of her real family was still back in Minnesota. So when Nick 
went out and got drunk and left for the track one night during the holiday season of 1973, she packed up the kids again and headed back to Minnesota. Yeah, Florida's funny, but, you know, I, I just want to go home. You know, I mean, home is home. You can't, you can't change it. And the younger kids would actually eventually heal from the damage that was done to them by Nick Griffin, but Bob never would. No, I mean, if he was the center of the shit, yep. there's no way you can recover from that. No, I mean, he was really, like, the beginning of his his mental health decline. Um, and then a quote, income tax deduction, one hell of a function. What? Income tax junction, one hell of a function. <laughs> it is not two conjunction junction. <laughs> but it could be. It could be. So Paul Harold Westerberg was a child of the 1950s, but just barely. He was the second son of Harold Robert Westerberg and Mary Louise Philip, and he hit the sheets on December 31st of 1959. And he wasn't due for a few more days, but he said that his ma always told me that she flipped the mattress that day to hurry up the process so I'd make it there in time to be a tax deduction How for 1959. How the fuck does that work? Please explain this to me. I don't understand. You see, you flip the mattress so it's firmer, so the baby wants to shoot out your vagina? <laughs> oh, I mean, no. I don't understand. I don't know, but that's that's Westerberg like, lore right Oh, there. man, this is firm. <laughs> 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 What? <laughs> I don't know. Sorry about my chair. <laughs> so Paul's mother was always trying to keep up appearances and make the family look like they were doing a lot better than they actually were. Now, Paul's father, Hal, was never the same after coming back from the Battle of Normandy, and he didn't speak much. He worked in the auto industry, and he kept his sales car in the driveway to look like their own. But in reality, they too were both drinkers. So, Paul had his first glass of vodka at the age of 13 Fuck. when he was dared by his sister. He immediately felt his anxiety slide away, and for the rest of his life, he would be chasing that feeling of calm. Oh, you constantly chase it. So, his mother's side of the family actually were musicians. His uncles played in and around the Minnesota area. And he originally wanted to play drums, but his mother convinced him that guitar was better suited to him. Because she didn't want to hear it? (laughs) (laughs) My mother's words of wisdom were, some musicians can get one girl, but remember, a guitar player always has his pick. And how right she was. (laughs) Dirty old lady. (laughs) Um, So now Bob had been playing guitar in various stints in juvenile reform schools around Minneapolis. Oh, okay. Paul was learning to play and sing while he was in Catholic school. And he heard punk. And he loved the Ramones and then the Sex Pistols and then got really into the Damned and some of the other English punk bands. And he decided to quit school just short of graduation because fuck them. Yeah. That's why. So... What I would describe the replacements music as is even though this band came after them, mm-hmm. is I would describe them as if Blind Melon and the Damned had a baby. That's kind of a thing. I I don't 
I guess. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Like, you see the bee, the bee girl, and then shit gets fucked up. Like, she drinks a 40 and just trashes the place. That's kind of what it felt like to me. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bob taught Tommy how to play the bass because he actually just needed a bass player. And Tommy didn't really want to learn at first, but Bob fed him candy bars and soda to entice him. <laughs> Come on, you can do it. And when that didn't work, he threw the speaker cabinet at him. Oh. And that worked. So if you, within a few months, Tommy was actually really proficient at the bass. He's like, I know that you like this, but you can't have it, so fuck you. Yeah. But that works. Yeah. Apparently it works. So Paul was working as a janitor, and he was walking home when he kept hearing this wailing coming from a few blocks over. And so he would follow it back to the source and meet the band. And he actually knew Chris Mars, the drummer, because his siblings all went to the same high school. And he'd seen Bob around town, usually as the weird guy on the bus. So Chris offered Paul a hit off their joint, and they all got to talking. And then he saw little Tommy Stinson, only 12 years old, but cute as all hell on his bass. And he knew this kid was a star in the making. Look, a little bit of pot and conversation will just take you anywhere. Been there. It's gotten a lot of bands started, that's for damn sure. Yep. So Some good old marijuana. <laughs> so Paul not only talked himself into the band, but into the leadership role right away. And they were still called Dog's Breath at the time, but the foundation for the replacements was there. And for a short time they played as the impediments, but after being banned from a church social for <laughs> drunken behavior, they convinced themselves to change the name of the band to the replacements because they always figured that everybody wanted other people to play and they were the replacements for the real band. And that's how they got their name. Yeah. So they went on to record a four-track demo in Chris Mars's basement. That tape was put in the hands of Peter Jesperson, the owner of a local punk record shop. And he heard that first song, and he knew he had a magic moment. He would actually go on to be the band's manager for most of their career. Hey, you should turn the volume down here. I have tried, and it does not want to be silenced. <laughs> it's like, hello! <laughs> she will not be silenced. Hello! You have a message. Can I you... have it all off. Okay. What the fuck? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know. So... Peter Jesperson got them signed to Twin Tone Records, and they recorded their first album. Sorry, Ma, forgot to take out the trash. Soon after that, they recorded the Stink EP. Both oh. sounded very hardcore punk, because that's what their influences were, and that's actually what was happening in the Minneapolis scene at the time with bands like Husker Du. Husker Du! Awesome band, love Bob Mould, um, both with Husker Du and Solo. So I don't blame them for having that as their influences. But it was bands like Husker Du and um, <laughs> Soul Asylum would come soon after that. Uh, and the other part of the music scene at the time was Prince and Morris Day in the time. So I mean, Prince is dope. No, the, they totally all played off each other. They all played gigs in and around each other. And this was like where they were coming in the bar scene in Minneapolis at the time. Um, so, after that, they recorded the album Hoot Nanny, their second full-length album. I like and that album title, by the way. That's, that's, that's it's great. Dope. They were just, like, fucking around in the studio because they didn't care. Like, they never took it seriously, and they were expanding their song st styles because they didn't 
They didn't care. They didn't know what they were doing. They were just trying to make music. And see, I got frustrated with the fact that they were, like, described as a punk band. But the more that I learn about them, the more I get it. Right? Mm-hmm. So a punk band's a band that plays super fast and just doesn't give a shit. And their first two albums, like, Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash and... um. The Stinky EP, they really are very just hardcore punk. It's just... But after that, they started just adding in little bits of stuff, and that's where they ended up. So... (laughs) So, when they released Hootenanny, they weren't taking it seriously, but other people were starting to listen to them and play the album. The Village Voice actually called it the most critically independent album of 1983. Damn. So they started touring behind it. And Tommy actually had to drop out of his sophomore year of high school to go on tour with the band. So they're playing, like, bars and everything every night. And Tommy's, like, literally a 15-year-old, like, getting fucked up on tour with everybody. So... It happens when you're the little brother. Exactly. (laughs) Brian, you know. Yeah, you wouldn't know anything about that. So, like, this tour was not a great success, though. They actually played CBGB, and they bombed. (laughs) They were too loud and obnoxious to play as the last band on a Sunday night slash Monday morning bill. I mean, that's going to be bad, considering the bands that have, like, landmarked that place. Exactly. And they were... Plasmatics? Like, holy shit. But no, like, people were not there for it. And they were actually almost denied entry altogether because they were so drunk when they got there. And Bob was just thrown out as soon as he walked in the door. (laughs) (laughs) And they hated touring. And they just wanted to go back home to Minneapolis where the people liked them and knew them. So they went back home. And they recorded another album, Let It Be. Now, Let It Be was actually a critical success. They brought in more of an arena rock and bluesy feel and focused on the songwriting, and critics were eating it up. They actually became friends with Peter Buck from R.E.M. while they were touring the last time. So he came in to help them a lot. Nice. And um, he's actually playing guitar on a few tracks on the album, like I Will Dare, which is one of the big songs off that album. The other big song off that album is Androgynous. And that's been covered by everybody from Joan Jett and Miley Cyrus to Laura Jane Grace to the Crash Test Dummies. If Slow you... down! <laughs> and sorry, my husband sorry. is now yelling out the window at people in the neighborhood because he's become that guy. Well, no, they're uh, fucking driving <laughs> super fast. It's a residential neighborhood. We have children. We have cats. <laughs> and here I am just trying to make a joke about the Crash Test Dummies. <laughs> um. <laughs> I don't even know the words. I'm like, that's that's enough. I think there was a boy with blue hair or green hair or something. I like, don't know. I just the '90s were fucked, man. Totally. <laughs> like, so the album did well enough, though, to garner them a bidding war, and they ended up on Sire Records, which is a subsidiary of Warner Brothers Music. And in October of 1985, they released. Tim, which personally I love Tim. It's a great album. It has some of their best and most memorable songs. Bastards of Young, of course. Oh yeah, Bastards of Young. I mean. Which is also where income tax deduction one hell of a function comes from. Um, but like that's just a banger. You can put it on at any party and I will be up there screaming along. Um, but also Kiss Me on the Bus, 
Waitress in the Sky, and fucking Here Comes a Regular, which is just heartbreaking. It's about the old guy at the end of the bar. And it's basically where they saw themselves. So it just tears you apart. But Waitress in the Sky is fucking hilarious. It's basically about stewardesses not giving them drinks on the plane. I mean... I mean, if I were a stewardess and I gave him a couple drinks and I'm like, you know what? Y'all are done. Exactly. But, you know, you ain't nothing but a waitress in the sky. (laughs) Rude. But, um, you know, the whole point is that this album had a little bit of everything going on for it. You can riot, you can laugh, and you can cry with this album. And they did well enough with it to be asked to play on Saturday Night Live, which was supposed to be their big break. Because G.E. Smith, the music director for SNL, liked them and actually went to Lorne Michaels to let them play. And that turned out to be a huge mistake. So, well, they were okay enough in rehearsals. Thursday night they went in, they blocked it, they held it together. But the night of the show, they had to go in early for rehearsals, and then they got locked in their dressing rooms until they were ready to play that night so that was a good four to five hours of being in the dressing rooms and they spent that entire time drinking and with guest star for the night harry dean stanton he stuck his head in they saw him drinking they were like hey you want to brew in a couple of lines and he was like hell yeah so they all got trashed and By the time they actually went on for their first song, Bob was so drunk that he tripped just getting on the stage, broke his guitar in half, and had to use a guitar from the house band. Then, during the first song, which was Bastards of Young, Westerberg can actually be heard saying, Come on, fucker! Off mic to Bob when they were about to get to the chorus to get him, like, playing faster. And when they were done, Bob did a somersault off stage and as he was going he ripped the back of the women's leotard that he was wearing and the gymnastics revealed that his whole backside had come out of the leotard and his bare ass was shown to the crowd so they left for break and lauren michaels came back to the hallway to meet them and they figured that he was going to be like hey great show instead he spent the entire time screaming at them for swearing on air, which back then was a big deal. And Paul tried to apologize, but Lauren was just not having any of it. And so they were like, okay, we'll do better. And they went on to play their second song of the night, which was Kiss Me on the Bus. And when they got on stage, they'd all swapped clothes. So they were all wearing something that one of the other members had been wearing in the first set. Except for Bob, he was still wearing the leotard that was ripped up the back because he had been getting high while everybody else was getting changed. But they did manage to control their language this time and with only one darn it coming from Tommy with a sneer at the camera. It didn't matter, though. The damage was done and they became one of the very first bands to ever be banned from Saturday Night Live. They would never play again. So by this time, it was obvious that Bob was in serious trouble, and Paul and the rest of the band were holding it together well enough to realize that if they wanted a more commercial success, they needed two things, a more accessible sound and a more reliable guitarist. 
1986, Paul and Tommy fired Bob Stinson from the band that he created. Tommy called it one of the worst days of his life. Yeah, I mean, how difficult is that to be like, hey, I gotta fire my brother? <laughs> not only, yeah, I mean, like, not only is he the man who created this band, but he's your brother, and you've got to tell him, sorry, you're too fucked up to be in my band anymore. We're taking it from here. Yeah, no, that's... That's a bad day. Yeah. <clears throat> that's a bad day time, times ten. Exactly. So, their next album, Don't Tell a Soul, was their commercial pinnacle. I'll admit, this is when I first started listening to them. It featured the single, I'll Be You, and that caught my attention. I heard it on the radio, and I loved it ever since. So, I still get happy when it comes on the radio. But they got in trouble again with television censors when they were on an award show and asked to change the line in the song, Talent Show. They were not supposed to say that they were feeling good from the pills we took. (laughs) So they snuck it in at the end, and it was too late to take the pills, so let's go! And they just couldn't help themselves. No. So they spent most of that year touring with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, but it again, it was a disaster. They all hated each other by the end of the tour. They were drinking far too heavily and barely holding it together. Yeah, but to get to tour with, like, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Which like... was great, in theory. <laughs> In theory, it was amazing, but but yeah, I mean, so they much. just notoriously could not keep their shit together when they were on tour. Like it was just temptation too much for them. Every time they were locked in a small space, the only way to get through it was like to get fucked up. To get fucked up, and so like they just like by the end of it, they weren't even talking to each other. They did one final album in 1990, and Paul pretty much put it together on his own. All Shook Down was mostly studio musicians with Tommy and the rest of them popping in from time to time, but they couldn't even really be in the studio together. Like, it was getting ugly. That's sad. So, I mean, the album itself is really toned down, and it's okay, but people just could tell it wasn't the same energy that they had before. Yeah. But on July 4th, 1991... Oh, back in night. Back in my day. <laughs> I was like waiting for it. Picture it. July 4th, 1991. The replacements are playing a free 4th of July party for Taste of Chicago in Grant Park, sponsored by WXRT, this great independent radio station we have here, and probably why I heard of them in the first place. Yeah, I mean, Taste of Chicago has come to be like a pinnacle like event to be at serve food and play because everybody's there exactly i mean it hosts millions of people every year like it's in the beginning of the summer and or mid in the middle of the summer and it's like it was the first big music festival in chicago other than blues fest and long before we got like Lollapalooza and Pitchfork and Riot Fest and all of these things. So it was like the place to go and see a really awesome band. And it was free, which was amazing. So, um, unfortunately, this would be the last show they played together for 22 years. And you were there. I was there. Now, the band was barely coherent. Paul was forgetting the words to his own song more than once as he was playing. And the last song that they ever played was Hootenanny. So as the song played, each member of the band handed off their instrument to a roadie who continued to play for them. And by the end, it was only roadies on stage. 
and they were the replacements for the replacements. And I was in that crowd, and I was 14, and I knew it was a shit show <laughs> even then. I was embarrassed for them. Yeah. But I didn't know it was going to be the last time I'd ever get to see them play. And at the time, I'm still, like, and I still, like, love the fact that I was at that show. It's one of my highlights of my concert-going career. But... It was the end of the band. By the end of that tour, none of them wanted to even look at each other again, and they would not for 22 years. So in the meantime, Paul Westerberg went solo. He released the single Dyslexic Heart for the movie Singles, and it was a mild success, but the album he released was called 14 Songs, and it didn't do so well on its own. And Tommy went and started his own band called Bash and Pop. And again, not bad at all pretty straightforward alternative but nobody was really buying it and paul and tommy were a team and their power came from their collaboration and on their own again it just was not the same it didn't have that fuel that energy that fire so after being ceremoniously dismissed by the replacements bob stinson was actually never in another full-time band he played in a few local bands, but mostly worked as a cook in a few restaurants around Minneapolis. Oh, that's sad. He was battling his addictions and a late diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Oh. And he was—he also got married and had his had a child, but his child was severely disabled and paralyzed mostly. I believe he had cere- um, cerebral palsy. So, like, he was dealing with that full time as much as he could. And... It just, he never recovered from it. So the replacements would not be back in the same room together until February 22nd of 1995. And sadly, this was the day that they laid Bob Stinson to rest in a funeral home in South Minneapolis. All that year, all those years of hard living and drinking finally caught up to him. He had gotten sober for two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks, but his body couldn't take it. Yeah, his body's like, no, I can't. <laughs> and he died of organ failure. Oh, it was God. actually a fairly peaceful death. They think he was actually listening to an album on his record player and went in his sleep. He just nodded off and never woke up again. Wow. Um, but he was laid to rest that day in February of 1995, and... One by one, the surviving replacements arrived. Paul, Tommy, drummer Chris Mars, and guitarist Slim Slim Dunlap, who had been brought in to replace Bob. Mm -hmm. And this was the reunion none of them wanted and all of them had feared. And there was Bob, still the center of attention, lying in his casket. When Paul walked in, Johnny's Gonna Die was playing because... Bob's mom, Anita, decided that the best music for this funeral was all of their albums. So they were playing the early ones when when Paul got there. And the song hit him straight in the face. Johnny always takes more than he needs, knows a couple chords, knows a couple leads. He'd actually written those lines about the doomed ex-New York Dolls guitarist Johnny Thunders after seeing him looking wasted but sounding brilliant at a concert back in 1980. And he always equated Johnny Thunders with what Bob Stinson brought to the replacements. So now over the years, they've had several offers for the band to reunite, 
And it took another bandmate falling ill to get them back in the studio. Paul and Tommy did a limited release EP called Songs for Slim to benefit the, their former guitarist Slim Dumlap after he had suffered a stroke. Only 250 of them were ever pressed, and they sold online by auction. But then... But then... But then... 2013 Riot Fest happened. What? The replacements played all three Riot Fest shows that year, from Toronto, Chicago, and Denver. They played Coachella, and they did a few one-off festival dates here and there that came together as sort of a spring tour, but by 2015, they had had enough. They all went back to their solo projects because they couldn't deal with each other anymore. And if you put together all of the t-shirts that Paul Westerberg wrote wore on that tour, the message became clear. The letters spelled out, I have always loved you. Now I must whore my past. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know if we'll ever get any more music from the replacements. Like that was one of the things that made them so intriguing. It was the not knowing. You never knew if they were going to be brilliant or fall apart into a drunken dumpster fire. You could get raw punk power or an honest ballad about the realities of their own drinking problems. You could see one of the best shows of your life, or see a band that barely liked themselves and hardly cared that you paid to see them. There emerged an element of unpredictability as the replacements, when sober, gained critical praise for their live shows. Part of the mystique of the replacements was the fact that the audience never knew until the start of the concert if the band would be sober enough to play. It was not uncommon for the group to play entire sets of cover versions, ranging anywhere from Brian Adams' Summer of 69 to Dusty Springfield's The Look of Love to Led Zeppelin's Black Dog, and playing it as long as they could figure out the chords and then giving up halfway through <laughs> and just going into the next song because they didn't know what just the hell like, they were blah, playing. Blah, 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 Fuck it. Let's yep. go to the next one. Exactly. So I am grateful that I did get to see them live. As I said, it was a total shit show. But I don't regret it for a minute. I've been using quote. I've now I've been using quotes all night from the book "The Trouble Boys: The True Story of the Replacements" by Bob Mare, and it's a good read. And it really delves deep into their stories with interviews from the band and their closest relatives and associates. And I highly recommend it if you're into rock bios, because I do love a good rock biography or autobiography. And this one was a really good read. I went through it pretty quickly. Um, The band, The Replacements, influenced so many people. They never really had a big hit, but their music is everywhere. Even Paul Westerberg, like the movie Heathers, the high school is named after him. They all go to Westerberg High. You can hear the fact that there is an entire movie named Can't Hardly Wait after one of their songs. Billy Joe Armstrong said that without the replacements, he never would have found punk music, and he would have just been a metalhead. That's crazy. The Gaslight Anthem have credited the the replacements as one of their main influences. To paraphrase a quote, the replacements were never stars, but they will always be legends. Yeah, that's pretty dope. Like, I mean, they did what they did because they enjoyed it, and it kept them from being, like... It kept them from either dying, ending up in jail, or being a janitor. Yeah, and like it kept them from the grave. Yeah. But unfortunately for I Bob, mean for Bob, it 
led there, but he was, it probably saved him a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, they all spent a fair amount of time in juvie and going back and forth from jail when they were younger. They knew that life. They saw all of their families falling into alcoholism and dying early. And, you know, they didn't want dead-end jobs. Like, I mean, honestly, if you listen to the song Bastards of Young, it really lays it all out for you. Yeah. So... And, I mean, that's their best song. Yeah, I mean, it really is. And I urge you to get on Spotify and listen to Replacements Radio because... You'll hear something that you truly love and probably a lot that you're just like, what the fuck is this skip? Yeah, you're going to hate it. But um, it's totally worth it. I mean, that's a trip to take. I mean, for me, that's the definition of like a good musician is they can show you something that you absolutely love and also something you absolutely hate. But at the same time, you're going to discover yourself through them doing the same thing. Exactly. And it's beautiful. So it was a story I've been like... Trying to tell for a while. I wanted a good time to bring it to you guys. Um, Because, yeah, it didn't exactly fit into, like, the dead celebrities, like, tragedies that we've been covering recently. But, I mean, it's still a tragedy. It is. It's a band that could have been so much more than they were. Exactly. I think it was more about the entire band flaming out and dying early than even just one member. And, you know... I think it's important that people remember their legacy and... We're the bastards of young. Exactly. So check it out. Hit us up on Instagram or Facebook or our email, dietblack at gmail.com. Yes. And if you have any thoughts or comments, let us know. If you have anybody else musically or otherwise that you want us to talk about, we are totally open to suggestions. Absolutely. And, you know, we hope you all are staying home, staying safe, staying healthy, and hopefully we'll be bringing you another story real soon. Yeah, and hopefully this uh, quarantine will be over soon. And you can actually go out and see live music as it was oh, meant man, to be done. I can't wait. But, but I can wait to make sure that I'm safe, you're safe, our friends and family are safe. Exactly. So. And hey, you know, if you guys want to hit us up for an online cocktail hour or just a chat on video or voice. We've, as I said, we've been doing a lot of that lately to check in on people and we're happy to bring that to you guys as well. Yeah. I mean, we can promise the same ridiculousness that you get right now with a little bit of some nice cold, hard truth, but a bunch of bullshit. We can do that, but there will be no absinthe involved. No, we're not doing that again. But um, Uh, if you haven't seen that video, check it out because it's hilarious. But, you know, we'll do another shot or two for you. Just not that. Yeah, maybe we'll do some alert. Although I've done it already, so it's not the same. But yeah, usually we've got Malort or Screwball or Tequila on hand. We've got something. So hopefully we will share that with you soon. In the meantime, you know, have a good night and diet black. Diet black.